tonight's passage, which comes out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-9. through 9. From Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of, Pon- of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have pled have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, excuse me, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you may have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, uh, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let me pray for us, and we will uh, get into what we're going to talk about tonight. Lord Jesus, um, my desire is always that we would be able to present you as you are and not let my weakness or limitations or confusions or immaturity obscure you. In our deep desire, I'll speak for my friends because I know it, um, they would, they want to see you. They want to know you. They want to know your love. They want to love you. But so many things threaten to obscure their view of you too. Their distractions, their not knowing anyone in this room, their fears. So before we do anything else, we cry out to you and say, come and help, we are weak. But we do it with hope because we know you love the weak and you love to help. And you love to show yourself to us. You never tire of that. So do it again tonight, we pray in your name. Amen. Hear this. Hope happens when a future certainty invades and overwhelms present uncertainties. Hope happens when a future certainty, not a wish, not a cross my fingers, squint my eyes, really, really hope it happens, when a future certainty invades, time travels back and invades a present unsettling difficult, disorienting, uncertainty. That's when hope happens. When hope happens, you can endure anything, right? Some of y'all have been through some unbelievable things. There's no explanation for why you survived it, why your faith is intact. God gave you hope. We can, we can endure when hope happens. We can thrive in the, in, the, in the harshest conditions, you can thrive when hope happens. 
You can be turned out of yourself towards the world. You can be available to be a priest to serve other people and to not think about yourself as much. You can do that when hope happens. Hear this. Dwelling, obsessing, fixating on these certain, these future certainties has enormous motivating power in the present. Obsessing about these future certainties has enormous motivating and sustaining power for the Christian in the present. Peter is asking you to stand at the foot of a mountain as he causes an avalanche of future certainties to come roaring down the mountain so big, so monumental that you feel the earth shake under your feet and you think it's going to kill you, but what it does is it just kind of catches you up in it and covers you. This avalanche is described in verses 2 through 9. Will you go stand at the foot of the mountain and let this come down on top of you? You could say no. You could, you could sit and let uh, the word of God come in one ear and right out the other ear. It's easy for that to happen. This could be another talk that gets forgotten by tomorrow morning. But I'm asking you, will you stand at the foot of the mountain and watch Peter cause an avalanche of future certainties, not I hope so's, but certainties of your future in Jesus. Will you allow it to come down and cover you? Will you put in the effort that will be required for that to happen? Will you stand still and even pray now that Jesus would allow it to catch you up in its force? Here's the avalanche. Starts in verse 2. Peter is talking to these elect exiles, these, all those synonyms we said last week, these uh, migrants, foreigners, resident aliens, strangers. Peter says, elect exiles, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. In other words, he's saying, you are a Christian, not because in some weak moment you made a little decision to ask God into your life, but because in strength, no one less than God himself made a decision to pursue you. And your salvation is not insecurely hanging in the balance of your decision-making, We have a pretty bad track record of that, but in his decision-making, a God who does not turn back on his decisions, who does not forget, who does not grow weary, the avalanche begins. You are alive in Jesus, not because you woke up one day and just decided to be, but because from before the foundations of the world, God has decided to pursue you in mercy, not because you deserved it, not because he foresaw some future merit in you that impressed him and he said, wow, when she hits 24, man, she's blowing my socks off. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick her. She's going to be one of mine. But because in mercy he saw you in your helplessness, in your resistance to him, in your enmity towards him, and decided that you were going to be one of the billboards of his mercy to the world. That the world might find it easier to believe that God is merciful and pursues those who run from him. And Peter says you've been set apart by the Spirit. This was not something where Jesus, maybe you think about salvation or becoming a Christian. It's not a situation where Jesus comes to God the Father and says, Father, I know you're really angry. I know you're always really angry, but um, would you please have mercy? He twists his arm. Would you please have mercy on Ben? The Father says, well, I don't love Ben, but I love you, Jesus, so I guess. No, this is the Father deciding to pursue you in love, deciding to send Jesus to live the life that you regret not living, that he lived and has now given to you, and to die in your place. He has sent Jesus to accomplish your salvation, and Jesus has poured out his spirit to apply the work that he did and to make it come alive inside of you. Not an idea out there, but but a reality inside of you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect agreement that he loves you. The avalanche games steam because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit moving towards you in love has caused you to be born again, born a second time, not naturally, but born to God, born alive. And not just born so that you can kind of grow up and go your own way, but born into a hope that is alive, into a living hope. There's that word again, hope. Quick aside, Peter is not calling you to have hope. Peter is saying you've been born into hope. You've been born into these future certainties, these future realities that are yours. That's why he calls it your inheritance. He's not saying be hopeful. He's saying you were born into hope. And it goes on. He says, uh, he connects this to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Just say, this is, a, this is an everlasting hope. It's a durable hope. It's a hope that can survive in any circumstances. It's a hope that can't be touched by anything, including death. And it continues. He says, into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. I don't know of any other inheritance that's invulnerable to fading or risk or perishing or spoiling, but this one won't. It's safe, which means no anxiety, no frantically building your entire life around protecting your nest egg, always checking on it to see if it's still there, no competition because it's not in threat, it's not in danger. It is secured and it is safe. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. The way Anna and I keep the most prized possessions of the family that belong to our children, but we, we hold on to them for now and we'll give them to them later. Anna just got a set of really nice china that's very expensive that my aunt is giving to Addie, my oldest daughter, and we're holding on to that baby for now until Addie is mature enough to receive that. 
God the Father is keeping this inheritance in heaven for you. And he is shielding you by his power until the fullness of your salvation is realized. In other words, until Jesus comes back and our life in exile is ended and we, our home comes here forever. Okay, so that's the avalanche. Why is Peter asking you to stand at the bottom of the mountain? Because all of these things, this secure, certain uh, salvation is yours in the midst of a whole life filled with insecurities and instabilities and fears and groanings. And Peter gives voice to this peppered throughout this entire passage. We've already talked about the exile part. All of this is true underneath the specter, the shadow, the dark cloud of exile. And then he says in verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice. In other words, anyone who's paying attention to this, we greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, which could be a long time, a little while could be a lifetime. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer in grief in all kinds of trials. He's intentionally vague, just like James was when we talked about it last fall, when you uh, rejoice when you suffer trials of various kinds. Intentionally vague because the variety is enormous. If there's 200 people in the room, there's 400 kinds of trials that are getting dealt with right now, Right? that are causing us to groan. And to make it harder, one of the features of exile is we don't see Jesus. Don't you want to see him? Don't you want to be able to live by sight and certainty and not faith? Don't you want to hold him and feel him hold you? Aren't you going to be glad for that day when you can and when he does? One of the features of exile is that we can't see the one that we love. We can't see the one who loves us which introduces a world of struggle all on its own, right? Does your faith ever feel doubtful or dark or weak or drifting or non-existent or here one second and gone the next? Do you ever wonder where Jesus is? Peter says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Future Secure certainties delivered to you in the midst of a very shaky, insecure, scary existence in exile. Peter is asking you to stand at the bottom of the hill as he starts an avalanche. And remember, friends, dwelling on these future certainties which are yours in Jesus. And if you're not in Jesus, that's the free offer. Are you dead? Jesus gives new birth and new life. And he's the only place you'll ever find it. And he has ears to hear your prayers. Dwelling on those future certainties has enormous motivating power and sustaining power for Christians living in exile, which is all Christians who've ever lived in this life. I was, I guess, thinking of this because of Monday and Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. But it got me thinking, and maybe I've been thinking about this even before, um, before this week and when I was thinking about this series, but um, when we talk about Christians living in exile, one of my fears in this series is that y'all will hear some of what I'm saying and it will sound like culture war-ish, 
like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, everybody. Batten down the hatches, get ready. There's no even smallest flavor of that in what Peter says here. Peter's not panicked, Peter's not frantic, Peter's not freaking out, Peter's not saying, oh my gosh, the game plan's destroyed, what are we going to do? Peter's calm, non-anxious, hopeful. But one of my fears is that, some, that maybe I'll accidentally say it or someone will accidentally hear me acting like, the whole world is moving away from Jesus. Not true. Maybe um, rich Westerners are, but not the rest of the world. Um, we have a lot to learn, and maybe one of the to-do items for you this spring is to begin to dip your toes in the water of reading about global Christianity, reading about revival in Iran right now, reading about your brothers and sisters who have lived under persecution and oppression in China or a thousand other places. But another place that I started reading more about a few years ago that you and I have a lot to learn from um, is the black church. Because their experience of exile maps onto the Christian's experience of exile in this world perfectly. It's why so many songs um, from the era of slavery in America are all just 100% saturated in Scripture. It's all right out of 1 Peter, right out of Exodus, right out of the prophets. It's their story. And we have a lot of catching up to do in learning how our brothers and sisters who came before us lived faithfully and would not surrender their allegiance to Jesus just because the culture and the country they were living at the time didn't want them, didn't want their call for justice, didn't want their faith, didn't see their value. And in humility and graciousness and in love for their neighbors, they continued to walk with Jesus. And the, the priestly impact of their faithfulness, we're all the beneficiaries of. And we live in a different culture in a different country because of it. A little, a little better, by no means perfect. So, MLK Day, Monday, I'm thinking of some of his speeches. One of them, he said this. It's relevant to our topic tonight. He said, if you lose hope, you lose the vitality that keeps you moving. You, you lose that courage that helps you go on in spite of it all. And so today, I still have a dream. If you lose hope, you lose the vitality that keeps you moving. Dostoevsky said, to lose hope is to cease living. Imagine an exile existence, a tiny but influential minority of priests living in this world that God has unleashed onto the world to draw the world near to him, but not valued, marginalized, dismissed, mocked, ridiculed, powerless. Imagine those people losing hope. See how I said it's fatal? You will not survive exile without hope. So that quote from King got me thinking about another speech of his. And it was the speech about the night before he was 
assassinated. He was up in Memphis. There was a sanitation worker strike, and he went up there to speak to a lot of those workers. And he said this, We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I have been to the mountaintop. Future, certain realities. He said, he didn't say, I hope one day we maybe, just maybe, we'll get to the mountaintop. He said, I don't care. I don't care what people can do to me. I have been to the mountaintop. He goes on, I have seen the promised land. Not I hope to see it one day. These future and secure um, blessings, your inheritance, this is a Christian who tasted it. It's like experiencing an amazing meal before you've eaten it. He saw the promised land. He has been to the mountaintop. Guess what went away? The anxiety. And he, he knows he's talking about the anxiety of his life being taken. It doesn't really matter with me now. Because these future promises of the Lord, I've seen them. I've tasted them. I know they're real. So he says, I may not, I may not get there with y'all, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people, we will get to the promised land. Remember, we have some difficult days ahead, and he knows it. Exile. And they all knew it. But there's something more motivating to him than fear. There's something more motivating to him than the threat of assassination. Do you know what it is? Hope. I told you, dwelling on these future certainties that are yours in Christ Jesus, secured in heaven and guarded, not by an angel, not by some saints who've already died and moved on, guarded by God the Father. Have you been to the mountaintop? Have you seen them? Have you felt the safety of what you have in Jesus tonight? Probably not fully because there's probably a lot of anxiety in your life, a lot of fear about, I just want to blend in. I just, want, I just don't want to look so strange. I just want people to accept me. I just don't want to deal with the social pressure. I don't want to be misunderstood. I want people to see me as thoughtful and sophisticated, not bigoted. Well, when you've been to the mountaintop and you have seen the promised land and you have tasted these future certainties that God is secured for you, Jesus has won for you, the Spirit is preserving for you, you will find those things fade away. And your priestly radiance and your usefulness to the world and your blessing of your friends and your courage and risk-taking and actually taking on the calling of a priest to help others who aren't near to God move near to Him, it'll increase and it'll grow and it'll grow and it'll grow and you will have an impact too just as God intended us to. So back to Martin Luther King Jr. I'm thinking about his speeches. I'm thinking about a man who is an expert in hope in the midst of exile and the motivating power of, of fixating on future certainties that will happen. And I'm thinking about the exilic experience and the groaning and the being misunderstood and the strangeness and how nobody just wanted to hear anything they had to say. 
I'm thinking about all of this, and I'm going back to that I have a dream speech, and I'm thinking, I don't think Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. He had a destiny. He was a great speaker. I think he said, I have a dream, because rhetorically it sounded better. He wasn't talking, he wasn't an optimistic guy. Maybe one day this evil, dark piece of our culture will fix itself. People will just repent on their own and just say, I shouldn't own human beings or oppress people. It doesn't happen that way. He was not a naive optimist. But he knew his destiny because he knew his God. Ours is a God of justice. He is a good God. He will not be mocked. He will not be ignored. It's his world, not anybody else's world. It's just the, the arc of justice may be, the arc of history may be long, but it bends towards justice. Why? Because God is a God of justice. This man, what I'm trying to show you is he knew his destiny in Jesus. And it motivated him through the worst of the worst exile. You knowing your destiny, your future certain security in Jesus will motivate you like you wouldn't believe you will be indestructible to the second or third hand rumors or comments you hear in the fraternity house, the sorority house, your friend group, your future employer. It'll grieve you. You're grieved by various trials. Peter's not saying Christians are stoics who'd have their ears plugged. It'll, it'll affect you. It'll grieve you. It'll discourage you. He said we have some hard days ahead of us. And you'll feel that too. But you will know because you know your destiny, because you know your God, because you know his promises, because you've stood at the mountain and felt the avalanche. And it has overtaken you and overwhelmed you. When you know your future more and more, you'll know what to do in the present more and more. When you grow fuzzy on your future, you will know what to do in your present. And I won't either. I mean, I'm with you. The days that I'm fuzzy on that, and I don't wake up thinking like, Jesus has set me apart in his love to love me and to send me back out to be a priest and a lover of my neighbors. When I wake up and I'm fuzzy on that and I'm like, oh, I'm a producer, I'm just busy, I gotta get all this stuff done, I'm way loaded down with way too much on my plate. And that's my identity, that's my mentality that morning. None of y'all benefit that much from that Ben. But from a Ben who wakes up realizing Jesus who is a priest is sharing his priestly role with us now. And he's saying, go be like me out into the world. I've made you holy. I've set you apart for that very specific job. Go do that. Is it making sense? You know, what I titled this is a non-anxious people in an anxious world. So long as you're worried about your inheritance, your reputation, your social status, your future net worth, your ability to get that future net worth, you will live a very anxious life, racked by worry. Every parable Jesus ever gave about rich people with lots of stuff, it was a parable really about anxiety. Be at rest, my soul, for you've stored up many goods. And God comes to him in that parable and says, you fool, tonight your soul is demanded of you. Um, when we live a life of accumulation and consuming and storing up enough to feel good, You'll always be worried because you'll never have enough. You'll always need to replace it. That inheritance is spoiling 
and fades and perishes. You put your hope in Georgia football and you're like, man, two trophies. Next fall is going to be anxious for that third. That is an inheritance that, boy, does that fade. Ask Nick Saban, who this year had the honor of being a panelist at the national championship because he didn't even get close to it. And his face when David Pollack said, Georgia football is overtaking college football. And he just looks off into the ground. Boy, is he feeling the perishing, fading, spoiling inheritance that the world offers. That some of you and me are building your entire life to try to get. Once you get it, it will be like air in your fingers. And it will leave you with a wasted life. But look at what inheritance you have in Jesus. That is a future. I love, I love how Peter describes this as God has not delegated safeguarding your faith. He is not even delegated guarding your inheritance. He says, no, this is a job for me. I'll guard the faith of my people as they walk through weakness and in exile in this life. And he says, I'll keep it in heaven. It's not kept here. You're not called to necessarily protect it and guard it. It's like God will protect it and guard it. You live in the freedom of it. People who have big inheritances and know it start living lavish lifestyles before they ever withdraw a single dollar, right? Because they know it's covered. Christians who actually believe they have an enormous inheritance in Jesus and always will and that they can't lose it start to live risky, bold, courageous lives. And they start bearing witness to Jesus. And they start seeing their friends drawn near to Jesus and born again to a new hope in Jesus. That's what happens. Um, I want to end just pointing out a few other things. A few other things that I notice here. Um, why does Peter want you and I to, to think about these things, to focus on these things? Why is this on Peter's radar? Why is it in the very first thoughts as he writes a letter to the Christians in these tiny little towns in Turkey? Um, I think because he knows if you don't start seeing yourself this way as a person who is safe because God has drawn you under his wings into safety as a person whose future is set because God himself is guarding it and nothing will separate you from his love, not the devil himself, not your sin. Um, if you don't start thinking about yourself the way God thinks about you, you will start reacting in anxiety, not responding in faith. One time I heard a person distinguish those two terms and they said reaction is visceral, it's primal, it's trigger, response. Hit my knee, boom, not thinking, not praying, not reorienting myself, just like reacting out of emotion. And they said responding is thoughtfully, intentionally, um, you know, responding to that situation or thinking through what am I going to do next in light of this. I think Peter is bringing this up to your attention so that you might respond in faith to the trials of various kinds that you're experiencing, the pressures of being a Christian alive in this moment in this culture. Because if you don't, I think you'll react in anxiety. And that's always messy. Do we ever make good decisions in panic? At least three ways I see it happening around us and in me. One of the ways that Christians can thoughtlessly, anxiously react to the pressures of living in exile 
is cultural compromise. It would be like uh, one of our brothers and sisters in the civil rights era was just like, life's going to be a lot easier for me if I just be quiet and blend in and play by the rules of the dominant culture. It's understandable to want to kind of stay under the radar, to waffle. It's understandable why a Christian would want to fly under the radar and downplay your love for Jesus. But it will leave you with a life of anxiety. Cultural combat is another. I think it's an anxious reaction, not a thoughtful, faithful response. We talked about this last week, but this is, you know, that that attitude of heart among some Christians anxiously trying to claw back power as if there was a Christian heyday, and if we could just get it back, everything would be fine. Uh, Side note, yeah, it is a better society when laws are based on justice and fairness and distinctly Christian worldview. So yes, I do grieve the loss of that, but are you going to legislate your way to the kingdom of God? No. Do you have to have political power, the courts, the Congress, and the president, for your soul to be at peace? No. There were no Christians in the world when Peter was writing this. And the emperor hated them with every passing year more and more. So cultural compromise, I think, is an anxious reaction. Cultural combat is an anxious reaction. And cultural retreat, the Amish method of wash our hands of the world, ball up inside of here, and RUF events are just for RUF people. This is my Wednesday night to be refreshed. I never think about my hallmates. I never think about my roommates. I never think about those high school friends that I used to be in a youth group with. This is kind of my time. The cultural retreat where we forsake our priestly calling and the purpose for which Jesus has made us alive. And we just be be kind of like, sucks to be y'all. Peter, instead of cultural compromise, cultural combat, or cultural retreat, is offering us kind, calm, confident, and hopeful response. Martin Luther King Jr. ended that his very last speech, some of his last recorded words, were words where he said, I have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And you could know that was not a line he rehearsed. He'd actually seen it, tasted and felt it. Could that be your prayer tonight? Jesus, tonight I want to begin a trajectory. I want to obsess and fixate and think about and dwell about and put before my mind and put in my conversations with friends this future security that I have in you. I want to stand under the avalanche. I want to give myself as much to thinking that about that as I do to my studies. And again, if you don't know Jesus, he has unleashed a nation of priests into the world because he sees you out there alienated from him and far from him. And his question to you is, what will you do next? As I've sent my messengers and my ambassadors to your doorstep to call you to my grace, Will you listen and will you respond or will you ignore? Let's just pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would give us the confidence, the courage, the faith.
to be a non-anxious present in a very anxious world, always trying to secure and lock down and protect its, its perishing inheritance. Would you set us free because our inheritance is solid, it's locked up, it's safe, so we can get out there and love. I pray that that would become the kind of people we are. If it's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to make it happen. So we entrust that to you tonight. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.